Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello, and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. I hope you're all doing well out there and you've been enjoying listening in to some of the recent podcasts. Thank you so much to those of you who've been passing on and recommending the podcast and also um, actually giving us recommendations on iTunes. That's been really, really kind of you. So, as I say, I hope you're doing well. The topic of this week's podcast is about thinking about individual reactions to change. And what really got me thinking about this was the whole reflection as we've been going through this lockdown period. At time of recording, I think we're into about week seven. Um, it's just how I feel that I myself have gone through the change curve. Many of you will have heard of this. If you haven't, don't worry, I'm going to run through it. Um, and also how I believe we're going to go through it again on the way out. So you, those of you who are regular listeners also know that change is a topic that I'm very interested in. I have got a book plug coming out uh, on the 21st of May. So it's available on um, Amazon and I'm doing a virtual book launch. So if any of you listeners um, would like to join the virtual book launch, the beauty of it, beauty of it being virtual is might, who's got anything different to do maybe on the 20th of May. So you'll all be really, really welcome if you'd like to join us. Um, and obviously there'll be links in the show notes as to how to get that or you can go to hruprising.com to get links to the virtual launch. But of course I've been thinking about what to do in the launch and I've been thinking about you know this extreme period of change that we've been through and of course we're going to continue going through as we go back into the workplace and uh, you know as time goes on change is something that has always been with, with us but never more strongly than I think than in 2020. So I felt that this was a good topic to cover as a solo episode. We've had a few weeks of fabulous masterclasses and I've been really fortunate to um, have various experts, people like us who have got their own expertise to share and I hope you've enjoyed those. Um, this week's going to be a solo episode so hopefully um, that will be okay with you as well. So, as I said, 2020 so far, I feel it's been a time of unforeseeable change and adaptation for everyone, but absolutely hugely for HR professionals. We've learned about not only personally about new diseases and impact of that, but there've been new laws, new working practices. In fact, all of these things that we've been working out as we've gone along, having to devise new policies, and we will have experienced plenty of different ways in which people respond to change and not always predictably or it doesn't feel like they don't respond in the same ways we might accept, um, expect. Something that we may have expected to be a really positive thing for, some, for one person may not be for another. You know, being furloughed for one person is not going to be positive for another. So what I wanted to go through in this episode was a reflection or just to share the predictable stage, stages of change for those of you who may or may not have come across the transition curve. Emphasise a few key points about change in terms of how people go through it. Talk about this in relation to how we came into lockdown, how we'll go out of it. Think about 
what's going to happen as we come out of this phase of our lives. Um, and also think about it in terms of the possibilities for what I'm going to call an improved normal. And my view is that listeners out there, people professionals who are listening to this and also people managers who are listening to this, this is a really good opportunity for you to be change superheroes in your own right. And uh, of course, that's the title of my book. So that's why I'm using that term. So many people will have come across the change curve, which was originally called the transition curve by a lady called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And this is back in the 60s. And her research centered around how people coped with death and bereavement. So clearly we're not talking about death and bereavement here. There are some very specific ways in which she went through that particular model. So she talked about five stages of grief. She called them denial, anger, bargaining, where people sort of go, you know, what is it or try to bargain about what's coming on in the future, depression, and then finally acceptance. Later on, someone called David Kessler, who co-authored work with her, um, actually added in a sort of sixth stage, which is about finding me meaning, where people go on beyond that um, curve, if you like, and find a new purpose. I suppose that an example might be where they set up a charity in that loved one's name. So they see a purpose, find a meaning um, in having lost them. So that's the context of bereavement, but the context of this podcast is the workplace. So I'm not expecting those to have a 100% crossover. But what I would say is that um, when I first got introduced to a variation on this model in, uh, in relation to business change, and this is 20 odd years ago, I've found it a really helpful reference tool ever since then for managers, HR, individuals when coaching. So it's a great frame of reference that we can use when we're considering how to help people through change. So obviously you can't see anything because this is something we talk, this is an auditory exercise. If you do want to download, I've got PowerPoint slides on this. You can actually access them by going to the link which has got the toolkit related to the book. And that link is www.changesuperhero.com. And there are loads of change resources there. But the business version, hopefully you can picture it if you're on your dog walk or if you're um, in the car listening to this, then you can picture this. So if you imagine a curve um, going through, an, an upside curve going through and then put a cross on it, you could divide each access of that curve into four quarters, if you like. And those four quarters have got labels to them when we're applying the transition curve to business. And on the left hand side, the first one is denial. The second one is resistance. Over on the right, then we've got exploration. And then the top right, we've got commitment. So we went through that curve. So denial at the top left, resistance at the bottom left, exploration on the bottom right, and commitment on the top right. Some people do put in place depression at the very base of the curve, and that's between resistance and exploration. Now, each stage of this curve brings a set of emotions and behaviors. Depending on how we feel about a change will depend on how quickly we go through the curve to commitment. And actually, some people may not even want to go through it at all. And that's probably one of the reasons that lots of changes fail, because uh, people are allowed to stay in denial or resistance uh, in organisational change. So this is something, if any of you have listened to the earlier podcast that I did, where we talked about Cotter's um, eight step change process and also about uh, Lewin's freeze, unfreeze uh, process, this would relate. You can see a correlation between this model and those. 
So hopefully you're with me in terms of this visual. I'll get into more examples in a moment if you're struggling, so apologies if you are. So in terms of this, the other thing to um, bear in mind about this visual is that above the center line, so the areas at the top, denial and commitment, you don't tend to see people doing anything. It's quite a quiet um, behavior, if you like. So people are not asking questions. They're not um, challenging the change. So what that can mean is that a commitment to one person where they're quietly getting on with the new way of being may be seen as the same as denial or vice versa. So more commonly, a line manager might say, oh yeah, Fred's absolutely on board, but actually, you know, Fred's got his head in the sand and he's just waiting for the change to go away because he's in denial. So occasionally, because there isn't lots of visible behavior um, associated with the stages of denial and commitment, they can be mistaken for one another. And that can be a risk when it comes to change because we find that people are just carrying on same as ever, which you have, you will have heard that in relation to um, things when we've talked about people who change in bereavement, where they're saying they're just, uh, they are almost in shock, they're in denial, they're just kind of actually acting as if nothing's happened. And I just think about that to a certain extent with some of my um, elderly relatives carrying on going to the corner shop at the first stage of the forest work, almost oblivious to the fact that people say, stay at home, we'll go to the shops for you. No, denial this business as usual. I still want to keep my routine and go and get the paper from the shop, even though it means putting myself in danger in principle and it's not an essential journey. So that's the sort of the denials aspect. Whereas um, resistance and exploration are actually much more visible because resistance, I'll go into more detail in a moment, uh, can be where people start to challenge, they may be a bit angry, uh, so they're, they're visibly um, and audibly complaining about the change. And uh, exploration is they, again, visible or audible, but they're probably asking more about the future. So that's one other difference in terms of if you were labeling these axes, and as I say, if you do want to see this visually, you can download an image of it, which might make it easier. On the left-hand side of the axis is more past, where we're more about um, staying as the, as is, you know, status quo. And on the right-hand side of the axis, so exploration and commitment is much more future-oriented. So people have moved over. The final point I'll make about this curve is that we can go through it incredibly quickly. So you'd never even notice us going through um, the earlier stages and go straight to commitment. That might depend on our personality or the extent to which we like the future, you know, associated with this new behavior. Um, and also people can go backwards through it. So someone may have got all the way over to exploration and then sink right back into denial for whatever reason. Maybe um, they've just realized something they hadn't thought about isn't going to work for them. Or uh, again, in these circumstances, they're suddenly incredibly frightened about getting to work. So they've been looking at the possibilities of going back into the workplace, how nice it would be with their team. But all of a sudden they've realised that they're going to have to sit on a crowded tube train. They've gone right back into, no, I don't need to leave the house. Um, I want things to stay as they are. So those are the types of stages that we can go through and change, these four stages. And as is the case with any of these models, any real... Um, any real sort of academics could go and criticize these models and they could say, oh, well, there's not enough proof for this. And you know, can you demonstrate it in reality? Let's not get hung up on those sort of things. I think the reality is if we can recognize these stages of behavior and you see someone behaving in a certain way, it's a really simple reference point for us to help them. Um, and that's why I like models like this, because I like things to be practical where I think actually that person 
uh, actually they're saying questions, they're asking questions about why this is happening and they, they're, they're pushing back. And we might think that that's quite a negative thing because they're saying, oh, this is so unfair. But actually, the fact they're pushing back means that they've moved out of denial and they're resisting the change now. And when they're doing that, those behaviours are visible to me and I can interact with them, which means I can help them. So for me, any of these these uh, models like this, it gives you a quick frame of reference by which you can think about what's the right behaviour that I can choose as a people professional, as an HR professional, as a change superhero that's going to help that person or this organisation get the outcome that it needs. So I've been referring to all of the styles and hopefully a few examples there brought it to life a bit, but just uh, going through it in a structured way for people who prefer to have something a little bit more linear. So what we're thinking about, if we are going to be change agents and we're all going to have to do this, let's face it, because we're going to go through another change, going back to normality, whatever normality looks like, we need to help people move through this change curve and reach commitment in the shortest time possible. Not only that, we want them to stay committed. So if we understand these stages, we can then support them more easily. Now, denial why do people choose denial? Well, it is a really effective strategy for people who don't like a change. Many, many organisational changes are poorly managed, they don't get embedded well, and one of the reasons is because those cynical, cynical employees, and I have heard people say this, and sometimes unfortunately they've been right, is they're going, well, I'm just going to keep my head down and I'm going to wait for it all to go away. And you know what? quite often because change isn't driven through in an organisation, uh, they that's okay, they can get away with it. Some people would have got away with that in terms of the lockdown, I suppose, and to, if it wasn't for the fact that increased measures um, were introduced, uh, that people, the, the peer pressure of people abusing, you know, sitting in parks or photographs or in the media of things like that, of people appearing not to be reacting differently, uh, started to shift the overall pressure. So that peer pressure in relation to what we've just been to, persuading people to behave differently and socially distance and be locked down, was part of the things that took us through this change. And if you think about that in an organisation, that's the importance of having a league of change agents of other people. So this might be your managers, uh, other people who are working with you to support the organisation back through the, the change going to the new normal. So um, the downside, as I said earlier, though, is mistaking silent denial for silent commitment, because sometimes we can wrongly assume that somebody has bought into something just because they're not saying otherwise. So if we see that someone is in denial or might be in denial, and I think the other um, area here is, I'll talk more about this later, but I think those people that we know may express slight bits of anxiety or have go very quiet when we talk about going back into the workplace, it may be worth asking how they feel about it. As soon as people start talking about that and opening up about how they feel, they're moving back into the new stage of resistance, which might be more ne might sound negative, but it is a sign of progress. And I do feel that we've got a massive responsibility to explore those people who have anxieties with empathy in the workplace, because there is lots of anxiety out there. We know that work mental health issues could be at high risk um, when we return to the workplace. Um, and coming through this almost a sort of reverse, a shock of, of making it through, or a survivor's guilt type thing. So understanding those people who are having anxieties 
which is different from people going, actually, I don't really want to change. I quite like not having to do my commute. I'm very happy with my home office set up uh, and I feel I'm more productive not in the office. That's a different kind of denial where they're going, I'll keep my mouth shut because I don't want to go back into the office as opposed to someone who is feeling really nervous and anxious about it. We need to understand the difference and understand which people are in which camp uh, and in which type of denial. Resistance, as I said earlier, people start to tell us their fears and concerns. And the great thing there, it means we can start to address them. But it can be quite sort of fast paced and frenzied and it might feel like conflict with people expressing anger and frustration. Um, They might ask challenging questions. We might not have the answers. I mean, I'm thinking now about those uh, videos of people in America where they've been protesting about coronavirus not being real and this being unfair, the lockdown. Um, So really very physically resisting and verbally resisting. In the workplace, in more regular change, people would express resistance saying things like, this will never work. And the key here is if we hear them say that, actually understand their concerns and encourage them to tell us why. If we dismiss those concerns, then they will go back into denial and just keep their heads down potentially, or maybe become more angry and vocally resistant. And neither is that helpful. So what we need to do is be empathic and understand what's uncover the cause of that resistance. If we carry on listening appropriately with the odd supportive question, it's likely that the person will actually start to move through the curve by themselves because they feel understood. They may then start switching their questions. They may still sound a bit hostile, but they might be more future oriented, like who's going to handle all the extra work or, you know, how on earth are we going to keep socially distanced? So how on earth will we keep two metres apart if we come back in the workplace in 1st of June? Um, those are still quite, may sound resistant, but actually they are a sign that that individual is starting to progress towards the next stage of exploration. Then if we go into exploration itself, it is an equally vocal stage, but people are interacting and questioning the future and it will gradually start to become more positive. So it might be questions around possibilities, like, I don't know, what new roles will be available or, you know, what's the timescale that we're going to come back to work or what allowances will we make to uh, you know, continue to have the balance between um, home working and office working? And it also, that's all much more possibilities, much more positive. It's sort of suggesting that there's a shared vision between us about where we're going and it allows us to interact more naturally. The main real difference is telling the fact that that person is now picturing the future and is sharing that vision with us. And it also means that we can perhaps work with them to get some of the solutions. So, well, what would work for you? What ideas do you have about how we could work together? And again, thinking about those who are anxious is, you know, what might feel like a comfortable way of returning to the workplace for you? What would minimise your anxieties? What would make you feel safe coming back to work? Those sorts of expressions could be a really helpful way of doing it. We've got to allow people to express their views and concerns in a safe, non-judgmental way to help them process the next stage of change back out of this, um, back into the future. We have to do this because we know, well, we have to find a way of still being functional, don't we, in order to get the economy back on track and businesses back on track. Um, but doesn't mean that the future has to be exactly the same as the one we left. Doesn't that's the, That would, is one thing I would say is I, I do feel that there's an opportunity for us to have an improved workplace by this very radical way in which the workplace has changed dramatically. Um, We've still managed to, due to the good, thank goodness it's happened now rather than 10, 15 years ago to technology, an awful lot has managed to be taken online and be virtual. So 
there's plenty here where we can actually think about what's what would be a good way of, of, of restarting the workplace for, for our organisation. So in terms of this, exploring that, I would say at this point, this is work with people. In traditional change, if it's something that is happening and you've just got to take people with you, with you then this is where we say, well, we have to sort of stand firm and say, this is where we're going. Um, the change is here to stay and that it's not optional. Right now, before we know how these things are going, and the likelihood is that uh, our return to normal, in inverted commas, uh, will be gradual, then we can work with people if we start talking to them now. And then the final stage is commitment. And this is almost silent. People know what they're doing. And actually, if you think about it, this is where we've been through this already. So the first, when we first went into lockdown, I was doing so many webinars on how to, how to work remotely and a certain early frenzied stage of, oh, this is really hard to do. And I'm balancing all these things and my kids. And then people have found a way of committing to that lockdown. They found a normality, a structure, a routine. The likelihood is it's not exactly the same as it was before, but they've settled into it. So we've got into this point. The problem is now we've got to go back through the curve again to go into the new um, commitment in terms of uh, a more of a hybrid workplace, let's say. So where we need to do here is actually identify, I suppose the one thing there though I'd say is Commitment needs to be a positive commitment. Are people, were they committed, those people who've got there, have they, were they committed to being highly productive, uh, how they can you know, take their challenges to the next level, be really, um, deliver productivity for the business in this current setup? And, or were they kind of committed to actually watching box sets of Netflix? Hopefully not, but that sort of thing. Are they being productive? It's got to be a win-win, that commitment that they've reached in terms of this, uh, this, what, this set of circumstances that we're in right now. So we need to understand our individuals and um, ho hoping to understand that overall culture, it's really useful for us to think about that then in terms of where we're going. And I used some examples as we went through that. So just finalising on commitment. So if you have got people through to commitment, you want to check about where they are. So you might say, how do they feel about the change? And they might go, well, absolutely fine. Actually, I'm loving working from home. Maybe you've got a survey going out. We use a wellbeing survey. We use our software to do a wellbeing survey. And actually, one of the questions is, um, you know, how do you feel about coming back to work? And how do you feel if this was to continue? How long could you continue? to work like this and that's quite indicative of how people are how committed they are to the current circumstances and of course the more committed they are to the current circumstances may or may not have an impact on how committed they are to want to come back into a traditional working environment but we do want people to be committed to be productive um, to help us all to go back to a productive economy and a productive and successful businesses that we represent so when we went into coronavirus, just summarising the, the stages again and helping us picture it, when we were in denial, I talked about, you know, the people doing business as usual. I heard from a number of HR professionals who I share um, various forums with that many of them were working with business leaders who were demanding that people carried on working as usual, even though this was counter to government advice. That's incredibly difficult for uh, an HR professional to navigate that. I'm aware of some who've actually had to resign because of the mismatch between the way in which their leaders, leaders they were working with were handling this. That's a whole different episode about values, which I do intend to look at at some point in the future. Um, but the key is some people that that was also a sign of denial and 
part of that was probably driven by fear. Those leaders were fearful that people wouldn't be productive or they would go out of business if they let people work remotely. Uh, other examples would be the school kids congregating, playing football. And we were all in this. I mean, I personally remember the weekend of the lockdown uh, hear it thinking, oh, maybe I should just go to the pub for one last time. And I mean, oh, no, that's a bit stupid. But I hadn't kind of, the penny hadn't dropped that the whole piece was the fact that this viral load, I don't think the why we needed to do this was really clearly explained uh, for me scientifically. It was the whole viral load when I got my head around that, when I realised it was the impact of being introduced to it many, 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 many times was likely to be uh, causing a greater issue people, which I know sounds obvious now, um, but the why, and many people need to understand the why of change before they will actually change their behaviour. Some people are more naturally compliant and if an authority says do this, then they will do that. Um, but I'm not one of those, so I need to understand why logically. Then when we went into it, we saw things like resistance. And as I gave you the example of the people in America, but I thought Mike Ashley you know, writing to the government saying that Sports Direct was a special exception to the rules is quite a good example of uh, resistance. Someone hadn't quite uh, got into it, seeing that they could challenge it. They've got a different reason to, to behave in that way. But then we've got into exploration. So where you get exploration with people going, OK, when and how can I work from home? Can I work slightly different hours because I've got children? What are my work priorities? Can we reschedule my objectives? How do I use the technology? Can I expense a desk chair? All of those are very much exploration. People thinking about new ways of working. And then commitment is where people have got into routines of walking the dog before lunch, having lunch with their family, uh, doing a Friday team quiz, actively using collaboration technologies, Thursday night clap for the NHS. There's whole routines that have sprung up now that we're all familiar with, um, which many of us have really enjoy and like and are positive, and that's commitment. So we came round that curve. The interesting thing is, you know, I was talking about the why. Education was important. Getting people to buy into this lockdown was quite key. So those people who were in denial and resistance, education was key. So I talked earlier about facts about the viral load, helping people to understand um, the, you know, the real multiplication impact and how incredibly contagious it is. Um, but then this whole vision. So you think about change. One of the things that one of the most important things about persuading people to change is creating a compelling vision. So this stay at home, save the NHS, save lives is a massively positive vision. And that was one of the things which was you know, shared very strongly. And for the UK listeners, I know we've got people all around the world, the NHS being our publicly funded health um, health provision then people are quite passionate about that. And that's quite a compelling vision. Now, I am interested, actually, I tweeted earlier, I'm interested about um, international uh, listeners, actually what motivated them to swing it uh, there. The other thing that I think made a difference was peer pressure, as I mentioned earlier, groupthink, social media shaming of people, oh, how dare those people be out in the work, you know, they're clearly sitting down having a picnic in the sunshine or groups of teenagers, so lots of uh, judging, really, I suppose, which pushed people pushed people around. I'd say that's quite a negative thing. And I suppose positive stuff would be persuading people to do it. So all those things are common to change. So there's a vision, there was um, away motivation from public pressure, and there was a whole sort of group, this is the right way to be, way of, of behaving. Now, 
my concern is, I suppose, thinking about this now when the, we're likely to have to go the other way, is if we bought into this stay at home because of the incredible um, infectiousness of this disease and because we want to save the NHS, that's not going to turn off overnight um, because that's actually a really compelling vision. So what would be a more compelling vision than saving the NHS? Are we going to save the NHS by going back to work? Well, I suppose we might because if we stay off too long, the economy will not be able to fund the NHS. But we are going to have to have a different vision to get people back to work. And we're going to need to be patient with people. We can't expect to rush out of this. In the same way as it took a while for people to be accustomed to being in lockdown, there are benefits, but it's going to take a while for them to be accustomed to being out of it. And there will be personal benefits for many of this new way of working uh, in terms of quality of life, potentially lack of a commute, uh, feeling safe. Uh, Equally, there will be positives in the fact that paradigms have been blown about the fact that we actually can do it remotely. Lots of there were lots of people just believing it wasn't, we couldn't be effective remotely. We have found ways of being effective. It may be a different kind of effective from before, but we have found ways of being effective while working remotely. So my thinking here is that we know the best way to deliver organisational change is to make sure we bring people with us. The best way to do that is by listening to people's concerns and their thoughts as to how to negotiate the change together. The likelihood is you will have natural risk takers who like change, who are going to adapt to the next phase of this situation far more effectively than those who are naturally anxious. On the other hand, those who have a tendency to be anxious are really likely to fear the return to the workplace. It might increase the risk of mental health issues. They might go sick. Um, We need to listen to their concerns because we'd rather have them working remotely than just going off on sickness. And we're going to need to get our line managers to do the same because people professionals on their own cannot do this. Again, going back to this league of people got people to stay at home that was more social. You need to make sure that the internal league of um, supporters are on side in terms of helping people decide how to come back to work. I don't see that a three line whip getting people back into the office Monday to Friday is going to be productive. I think it's the reverse. So we need to think about how can we negotiate with our colleagues and support them in finding a new great way of working? What does our new workplace look like? What have we gained from this way of working Um, and what are we missing? And how can we define something that is new and inspiring for our workplace? It's clear that just because restrictions are lifted, people are not going to want to jump on a packed tube at rush hour tomorrow. And we know that a second peak isn't going to help us or the NHS. So that's my suggestion, I suppose, my takeaway is, is now a great time to talk to our colleagues about what is working about this current setup and what isn't. Could we agree a new set of working practices that will bring people along with us and alleviate anxieties for many? So it's a real opportunity for consultation, asking people, I don't know whether they survey them, interview them, suggestions, however you can gather information, but involve people now about what would they like to see the future workplace to look like. We know that many people have been more effective, not less effective when they've been at home. Not everybody. So maybe the other question is, how can we, if we are going to retain a level of remote working, ensure that the visibility and accountability is in place. 
You know, are people delivering against current or outdated objectives? Are they being managed effectively by the line manager? Um, have you got systems in place that's perhaps giving that visibility and structure um, for remote people management? So really engaging those line manager and actually have your line managers got the skills to manage remote workers effectively? We know that there's a dearth of skills in line management and that was in the old style of working. So is there something to look at here in terms of better virtual people management skills um, and virtual people management um, systems? Perhaps those are the things which you could look to um, support our next phase of working practice. So hopefully, I'll summarise the key points here, but the idea there was to look at the transition curve in relation to the circumstances they've been through and I suppose put in place an exploration uh, challenge to the listeners as to is now a great time to think about how can we redefine the future workplace and use this as a catalyst to create an improved normal. So in summary, we've run through the predictable stages of change uh, which are denial, resistance, exploration and commitment. We've emphasised the fact that people can go back and forwards through change, whether they're depending on their personality and the way it's been handled. Observation, it took time for the critical mass to buy into lockdown. It's going to take time to come out. If we try to go right back to how things were, I believe it will generate more resistance and anxiety and might be a step backwards. So challenge is, is this an opportunity for us to define a new improved normal for our workplaces with the help from the people who work in it? And perhaps it's our chance as people professionals to put on our change superhero capes, get ahead of the curve and agree these new working practices in a way that increases buy-in. Thank you for listening. I hope that was food for thought. I would say the theme that I had just in summary here um, was about change superheroes. So if you are wanting to think more about change, then you can access the toolkit that I've got along with the book, um, which is www.changesuperhero.com. As ever, you can access these things from our hruprising.com website. So all these things will be signposted from there. The toolkit is completely free, by the way. Uh, if you would like to support my book launch, you're cordially invited to the virtual launch event, which is on the 20th of May. I'd love HR Uprising listeners um, to join me. I'm quite scared as to how we're going to make that happen, but I've got a bit of time to uh, make it as exciting as you can a virtual book launch. Um, if you'd like to be a supporter and part of our launch league, do sign up to that and we'll let you know when the book goes live. Um, the book is available to pre-order on Amazon, but there will be a Kindle version available for just £1.99 for 24 hours on the 21st of May only. So if you want a bargain and if you want us to remind you about the bargain, then just drop us a line or join the virtual launch and we'll let you know on the morning of the 21st. Um, I'd be really grateful for, for supporters if they're interested in taking a read of the book, of which there is one chapter on the change curve that we just talked about. And finally, one thing I wanted to introduce, uh, being me, I would like to do it every week, but I'm not always that consistent. But one of the original reasons for the HR uprising was to encourage collaboration and We've had some great people on the on the um, HR Uprising podcast. I hope you agree. And I feel that that's been a way of 
you know, giving them a space. It's not always about the usual suspects. It's about giving them exposure um, as to how much expertise there is out there uh, amongst our fellow professionals. But also I thought, well, who's been, who have I collaborated with lately? Am I pushing myself to network and to build new relationships? And so I wanted to give a shout out to someone that I'm sure many of you come across, someone called Ross Garner of the Good Practice. Uh, well, he's actually Emerald Works, but he hosts a Good Practice podcast by Emerald Works. I got a call with him last week and we spent an hour chatting about a range of things. He gave me the, his valuable insight into all things LMS, which is what I was picking his brains on. And I just had a great chat. And uh, I, I really encourage you to find so, someone out there who is another people professional and why not, as particularly now we're still locked down, why not find that time to have a half hour virtual coffee with them? And I'm going to aim to do that. So if you're about and you'd be wanting a virtual coffee, get in touch um, and I'm hoping to you know, get one of those in each week and maybe give somebody a shout out in terms of thanking them for uh, giving me the time and helping me to learn from them. So that's it now for this week. Apologies, I've gone on a bit, 35 minutes. Um, wishing you all the best and thanks again as ever for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.